Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 180. Today, I'm talking to Jeff and Michele all about accessible content and making our books, our social media, our websites more accessible for more readers. But first to last week's question, which was, what book has gotten you out of a reading slump? Carrie says, I'm still in a slump. I'm always so tired by the time I have time to read that I can read a few pages before I shut down. I think I need an Audible subscription again. Heather says, the book that recently got me out of a reading slump was The Rage Read that was Iron Widow and it was just what I needed. Er said, another stupid love song by Miranda McLeod and M. Stevens. Last summer, I was racially abused on my way home Oh, and followed the train station. Uh, followed to the train station by a group of white men. Ah, oh, I'm already fucking livid reading this. It was really traumatic, and I fell into a deep depression afterwards. Stopped going out. Stopped writing and reading. Oh my god, I hate reading this. I'm so sorry. When I, uh, but then I saw Miranda mention that she had a new age gap romance and the part of me that felt curious about stories began to wake up when I started reading. The straightforward writing style, fast pacing and promise of a happily ever after made it a good book to start with. I seriously don't know what the fuck is wrong with people. Like there are this, look, I'm not going to get into a whole load of politics and and opinions right now, but just know that, um, reading that made me really cross and I'm really sorry that you experienced that and I'm really really glad that reading and story and happy ever afters have helped you to at least heal a little bit from that um, experience. This week's question is, tell me something interesting that you've learned this year. We are heading towards the end of the first quarter. What the fuck? And uh, so I want to know, what have you learned this year? It could be something small. It could be something uh, not at all about writing. Uh, It could be anything really. So yeah, it could be about yourself as well. Let me know what you have learned uh, about something this year. Okay, the book recommendation of the week this week is Guava Flavoured Lies by J.J. Arias. JJ is a fucking master of bickering. JJ is coming on the... This is the same JJ who interviewed me in the Ruby Row launch episode. And JJ is coming on the show. Uh, We are literally just in the process of booking a date. Oh my God. I had the pleasure of reading uh, Guava Flavoured Lies in audio and it was so good. It was the breath of fresh air that I needed. And okay, so let's... Let me tell you about it instead of just keep fucking ranting about how good it is. Uh, It's a contemporary uh, romance, sapphic romance, contemporary sapphic romance with um, two Cuban families rowing. They've got a shit ton of like history, uh, familial history and like generational uh, arguments between them. They're, They're both pastry chef families and they own like pastry shops. And it's like it the bickering went back to school girl days and it was I've just never read anything where the bickering was so real and so funny and so brilliant and I just 
like I literally laughed and I don't know I don't know it was just I think it actually will go down as my favorite contemporary romance that I've ever read uh I loved it that much it's it's kind of rivals to lovers as well I, yeah enemies to lovers rivals to lovers probably rivals to lovers I would say um just because there are no like stabby knives um but it is just fantastic so if you are looking for an example of dialogue that is sharp as fuck um and bickering that is just fantastic between two love interests this is the story for you highly highly recommend this book of course links will be in the show notes so in personal news and update i'm sick again <laughs> literally can't fucking believe it woke up a couple of days ago feeling like rough as a dog and I just honestly I really want this to be a positive episode I hate being whiny I just you know what I'm like I like to charge forward at a thousand miles per hour all of the time and always look to the goal to the future to the whatever you know and I just I'm struggling this week it is a struggle I am exhausted again and I genuinely don't think it's any one thing in my life particularly I just think it is the fact that it's all of them (laughs) combined and I really need to fucking slow down or like not slow down but just like take something off my plate before I crash and burn because um I I sort of feel like this is a mini physical burnout I I have decided to reduce boot camp slightly instead of going five times a week I'm going to go three times a week for now um and I'm going to move one of those to the weekend so that I um get a little bit more time in the week uh during the working days so that I um can uh you know not work in the evening so much but yeah, I'm I'm really over being sick this year. It is alarm bells to me. Like, you know, I am acutely aware that this is a problem and that I need to have a holiday or take some time off. The problem is I'm really shit at taking time off at home because my office is at home. So, you know, that's why I like to travel because then, you know, the office isn't here, the temptation isn't here. Um it's probably a very privileged thing to say but you know I do struggle to take time off at home it just is what it is it's a fact um so that's kind of where I'm at um uh, yeah I just I don't feel well and I would like to not be working today (laughs) if I'm honest but there are things that need doing and things that have deadlines so on I go In terms of what I've been working on, I have started the villain's journey. I'm super excited. Uh, I have been trying Rachel's method, which I know you guys will have heard about last week when the black heron... Oh, no, no. So for those listening on the podcast, you won't have heard about this yet. But for those on Patreon, you will have heard about it. So in the coming episode uh rachel and i discussed the fact that she started writing 500 new words a day on anything they can be any project and i was like oh that's amazing and basically uh if you do it every single day of the year i think it's about 182,000 words a year uh, that's like three books <laughs> or more if you write non-fiction and shorter word counts and i'm not going to do it every single day i'm just trying to do it every working day and so yeah i have started uh the villain's journey and i'm already three thousand words in i know that doesn't sound like a lot but uh i'm not supposed to start writing this until may you know and at this rate i could go to may with about 20k in the bag so feels like a lot to me i'm very very happy and i'm about nineteen thousand words into um the second 
Girl Games book. This is the one that I already had 30k in, but no, I, I as you know, I more or less scrapped it. I have salvaged some of the stuff from, from the first version. And uh, so yeah, I'm 19,000 words into the book. I've been doing about 5,000 word days, which is great, uh, and using I Write to Sprint in the morning, and that's really been helping. So yeah, I feel pretty good about the writing projects, and it's really nice to be writing words. I find that I get to a point where I'm exhausted and don't want to write anymore and then probably because I burn so hard and then I like get very sick and tired of doing the marketing or the editing or whatever it is and want to go back to doing the drafting so it's it's a good schedule to have to be able to switch between the two. So when you hear this it will be my birthday week and um, I am considering <laughs> given that I'm not feeling very well that I might take a couple of days off I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I would like to go uh, down to London and go to the big water stains and like spend some time in there. But we'll see. I don't know whether or not I'll actually get to do that, but it would be nice too. So we'll see. And you know, given that I'm not feeling very well, I think that is probably everything that I'm going to update you with this week. So the Rebel of the Week this week is, and I have to say, I did pause for a second and have to reread the name. It's Angel Ackerman, which... <laughs> When you write it and you read quickly, very much read as Angela Ackerman. Not Angela Ackerman, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's definitely Angel Ackerman. So let me read Angel's story to you. I work in the Stitch Fix warehouse in Pennsylvania, folding clothes for eight hours a day. I'm a former journalist and needed a low-stress job that could allow me time and energy to pursue my own creative interests. At the warehouse, which Stitch Fix refers to as hizzies, with cute names for each, we are the busy hizzy, uh, but there is also the breezy, the hoozy, the dizzy, and the fizzy. That was easy for me to say. <laughs> Blimey. I'm allowed to listen to podcasts and so. As a writer, I discovered the Rebel Author podcast and many others in the industry. I have racked my brain trying to capture a Rebel story from memory, and suddenly I realised my whole creative side hustle is Rebellion. I founded Parisian Phoenix Publishing in 2021 as the brand behind my paranormal women's fiction series, Fashions, Fashion and Fiends, debuting with the first vol volume Manipulations in September of that year. One of my best friends is a graphic designer with an obsession with typography. In her first job as a graphic design professor, had invented the name and logo for the company and a complete box set of the novels in 2008, just to have something to submit for the faculty art show. At the time, I was shopping my novels to traditional publishers and agents, attending conferences and serving on the board of my local writers group. Motherhood prevented me from giving proper effort to that, and the book industry was changing so much in the noughts. Uh, when the pandemic happened, I thought it would be fun and rebellious to self-publish to preserve these stories for my now teen daughter. But the project barrel rolled into a full-fledged craft press as more people asked me to publish their books. I asked fellow writers and artists for help with projects being proposed because linking creative communities is one of our goals. As of 2023, Parisian Phoenix has nine published books ranging from an anthology of marginalised voices, LGBTQ, disability, mental health, body image, ethnicity, etc. to a romantic comedy with original photographs, a devotional focusing on how to protect yourself in a violent modern world without violating your Christian values in production, and an 11th book of short stories in the editing phase, not to mention poetry, a Holocaust memoir and nostalgic fiction. 
each book seems to host its own rebellion. Our tagline is publishing unique voices and diverse perspectives. And many of our staff members and peer review board members have disabilities. I have cerebral palsy. My assistant editor has been blind since birth and we have primarily women on board. This is an awesome, awesome uh, rebellion. And uh, yeah, look up Parisian Phoenix if you are interested in finding out more about them. I think this is such a cool rebellion. And the fact that you are creating communities and connecting people and helping to bring diverse voices into the world is just fantastic. So I absolutely love that rebellion. And also thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something in between. You can email Email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. A huge welcome and a warm thank you to new patron Wendy Karras. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of my existing patrons. You guys help to keep the show running. You make me feel like what I do is worthwhile and having a wonderful impact. So I really, really appreciate each and every single one of you. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a ton of bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, that's it from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. We are in for a special treat today because we have not one, but two guests on the show. First, we have Jeff Adams. Jeff is a creative entrepreneur as an author of both queer romances and young adult fiction, as well as the co-host of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. In his day job, Jeff's a certified professional in accessibility core competencies by the International Association of Accessibility Professionals. As the Accessibility Operations Director for UsableNet, a company focused on making the digital world more accessible and usable, he consults with clients around the world about digital accessibility. Next up, we have Michele Lucchini. Michele is the Vice President of Delivery and Accessibility Operations for UsableNet and oversees the teams responsible for ensuring clients' success in their digital accessibility program. Michele's background is rooted in software development first and moving to team and operation management later. Thanks to experience gathered in over two decades, Michele is an expert at helping companies from the largest to the smallest, making their digital experiences accessible. Hello and welcome. Thanks for having us, Sasha. It's great to be here. So, Jeff, you were first on the show back in episode 55, which I can't actually believe because that was October 2020. What? It feels like a year ago, like I, years and years and years ago. I know. I know. I mean, I mean, honestly, time is a lie. I was texting one of my friends this evening who was talking about the movie um, Everything Everywhere, so, so, Everything Everything. Everything like everywhere that. all at once. I That's think. it. Yes, that one. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was out like like three years ago. And she was like, oh, actually, no, it's up for the Oscars now. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> no, no, no. It can't possibly have been out last year. No, it was. Yeah, time is a lie. It's weird. So normally I ask people like what their journey is, how they came to writing the book. Um, but I'm gonna ask you first of all, like, what have you been up to since then? Because obviously we know like your journey from the from the first episode, which I'll link in the show notes. It's interesting as I went back to look at 55 and like what was going on in October of 2020, like within the month before you dropped that episode. So between the time we talked for that interview and we and you dropped the episode, we actually ended 
the Big Gay Author podcast, which is one of the things we were talking about on that show, mostly because with pandemic and other things that were going on, like some of our priorities shifted and it's like we weren't sure that show was really relevant anymore. So as it's so popular now, we learned how to say no and learn when to end something and put that aside. Uh, Big Gay Fiction Podcast continues on, uh, celebrated its, uh, it went into its eighth year last November. So we're 400 plus episodes now there. Um, so that's been exciting. I've been, I've written the book we're about to talk about. And the neat thing about that, I think, is writing this nonfiction book, I think has re-sparked my fiction side a little bit because I've been really stagnant over the last couple of years. I've done some re-releases of some things I got the rights back on, but writing new stuff has really been a struggle. So my fingers crossed that the nonfiction kind of broke the the that kind of cloud over my head, if you will, and I'm going to be able to hopefully get some new fiction out this year. I, I always find nonfiction is a real palate cleanser. Like I adore fiction, but I definitely need to also write nonfiction because it gets me excited to go back to the fiction. Otherwise, I do tend to find it's a bit of a bit of a burn. Um, so, Michele, ha- have you written other books, or is this your first one? Or that's the very first one. Yeah. Oh, I... that's exciting. I think the last thing I, I wrote was my thesis at the university, and that was <laughs> far from the exciting. But uh, well, actually, actually, it was was in home home automation, so it was actually an, an interesting topic. But yeah, no, I I always loved uh, writing, but I never kind of dedicated myself enough to call myself a, like a producer or a writer of of a proper book. So, so before we dive into the questions, like about the book, then how did you find writing, like and writing together? Like, what was what was the experience like for you? Well, let's also consider that is a is not my mother language, right? So it was a was an extremely interesting experience. Uh, so I had the opportunity to learn on many different threads. So one is uh, the challenge of transferring something that is my daily job knowledge and the knowledge that has been built across 22 years that I I was use the word dedicate to to this topic um plus learning the ability to yeah to put in words for somebody that is now an expert one of the limits that I realize I, I, I have is that sometimes when you gather so much experience you kind of lose the ability to explain and translating in easy terms, and uh, and I think that Jeff also experienced the same. And we, uh, I remember the first iteration of our review process. We we were asking ourselves, well, does it make any sense for somebody that for the first time approaches approaches the, the topic of accessibility? So it was um, it was an interesting learning curve, but was uh, was what made all the project extremely interesting for me. Well, you both absolutely smashed it because it's the most meta book possible. It, it, for a book on accessibility, it's extremely accessible for someone who knows nothing about it. So you absolutely smashed it out of the park. So well done, both of you. And that is what we're here to talk about. And your new book is called Content for Everybody. And it focuses on the topic of accessibility. So before we dive into some more technical, um, practical tips and tricks, like why accessibility why did what made you want to write a book on this topic and why is it so important particularly for for the authors and writers listening the the whole thing kind of 
became this big smashing together of my day job in accessibility, but the things that I do on the creative side. So even before the book was kind of a seed in my head to do, I was trying to make sure that my sites, my email, my social media were as accessible as I could make them, you know, and cause I'm not technical, um, knowing what you need to do and actually being able to do it can be two different things, you know? And so as I moving through this, and as I talked about content accessibility all the time, it's one of the things I train usable net clients about is that very topic. And so it's so in my brain, I can't not see issues almost everywhere I go on the net, no alt text on Facebook, bad color combinations here things that don't work with keyboard, you know, all these things just keep being in my, in front of me. And I know that nobody sets out to do that. You know, nobody sets out to make inaccessible content that can exclude potentially a lot of people. They just don't know what to do and they don't know what the topic is. So it's like, why don't I try to create something that distills what you can work on, and also to a degree, things to watch out for. Because there are things in the book that are, and keyboard navigation is a great example of this, and we'll probably talk about a little bit more about that piece of it later, but you're not going to fix your own keyboard navigation issues, but if you know you have them, you might get a new template or do something to start to mitigate those problems. And so that's kind of where it started. And then one one day, as I was talking with Michaela, as we do all the time, um, I was like, I'm going to write this book and he was interested. So we decided to kind of tackle it together. <laughs> I love this so much. And I, like, I think it was such a humbling experience for me to read as well, because my stepfather is disabled and he uses a wheelchair. And so I have um, a reasonable amount of knowledge about accessibility in terms of like mobility and physical issues um and so I kind of went into the book thinking oh yeah like I'm gonna I'm gonna understand holy moly I was so ignorant of um digital issues like all of the bits and bobs like on social media like just things that I wouldn't even have thought would be an issue. Um, and that's what I loved so much about this book is I genuinely feel like every single person listening to this podcast will go away having learnt something. Um, so I think it's really important that listeners do go and educate themselves and buy your book and read your book because it's fucking brilliant. Um, so in your book, one of the things that you talk about are the four main types of disability. And I think it would be helpful for listeners to understand what they are to give some context um, to the rest of the podcast. Um, And I don't know if you are able just to give some like references to a couple of the numbers, which were really quite um, significant. Uh, And I was quite shocked when I read it and saw some of those stats. you know, and by that, I mean, sort of how many people are affected by disability. So, um, yeah, because this is an important topic. Yeah, it is. And uh, numbers are shocking. And uh, I think that we we can identify uh, four main categories of disabilities, which is mobility. And this is the largest, uh, uh, the largest group. So, uh, over 13, almost 14% of US population has some mobility impairment. So translated into a digital experience, it could be uh, something preventing the user to use the mouse 
or um, I mean, or reg a regular pointer pointing device. The, the second category is the cognitive disability. And here we are talking about uh, uh, over 10% of the US population. Uh, any, any cognitive disorder, it could be um, learning uh, difficulties, uh, dyslexia. And I'm not just talking about uh, very, uh, I mean, very bad uh, disabilities, but just simple conditions that are not preventing um, an individual to conduct a normal life. Uh, the third category is the auditory uh, disability uh, that counts uh, around the 6% of the population and the auditory disability is any form of hearing loss. And last, last but not least is the visual disability. Um, here we, we are around the 5% of the population. So uh, within the visual disability, of course, we include the, the blind individual categories, but we might have any kind of low vision, uh, color blindness, uh, contrast deficit, and all uh, impairments that are preventing a, a user to be able to see uh, colors or transfer to the digital world, the content as the mainstream, which is a word that I hate and a concept that I hate will, um, will, will, will experience on the side. But there is one more, in my opinion, shocking number. Um, beside the fact that with, with an easy math, we are saying that 20% of the population has a sort of disability. 20% of your audience, your customers potentially have a sort of disability. But in these 20%, we're not counting all the temporary impairments. So somebody that broke his arm, somebody that is using his mobile phone um, under the sunlight and the sun is hitting the screen and is not able to see as it will be able to see the, the screen in the dark. We are now also considering that the age of the digital population is increasing year after year. I always use an example. So my dad is uh, 74, is uh, active, uh, smart, quick. His expectation is to keep interacting with his mobile phone, for example, as it is right now. Why should I accept that as his sight has become a little bit lower, as his precision with the movements might degradate in the course of the years, he won't be able to use his phone. He won't be able to do what he's doing with his computer. So that becomes a basic expectation. So we need to take that in consideration. So that 20% actually, it is much, much more if we are considering all the, let's call them disability induced by the context of use or simple, the population getting older. I think one of the things that I found uh, enlightening uh, is the term assistive technology and what that captures, because I think many of us are actually using some of these technologies without even realizing that actually they are tools that help those people who do have accessibility issues. I know I certainly was like, oh, and, you know, I was just using this because this is a handy thing, you know, and actually they're they're integral to ensure that our content content is accessible for everybody. So I wondered if you could talk about um, what 
assistive technology is and give some like examples um, just to put it into context. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that, as you noted, we use it every day and don't even think about it. You and I are wearing assistive technology right now, Sasha, because we're both in glasses. Think about what you Mind would blows. not be able to see if <laughs> you didn't have your glasses on. I, I really couldn't. <laughs> you know, it, it would be a mess. Um, using speech to text technology, I think we use it all the time. Authors certainly use it a lot to dictate their manuscripts. You know, if you're dictating a text to your phone and then sending it that way or inter interacting with any home assistant, that's part of it. But also for some people um, who maybe are are restricted in the mobility area, they may use speech to text of that kind to literally navigate the web. And that would be what they'd use in place of a mouse um, is speaking to the computer. Uh, the keyboard itself is a big assistive tool. Uh, for some people, because theoretically, uh, you know, by the rules of accessibility, you should be able to interact with the site completely on your keyboard without interacting with the mouse at all. Uh, so things like that, you know, are, are some of the high level things. But then each of our computers, if we're on any kind of, you know, modern Mac or Windows machine, or if we're using Android or iOS phones and, and tablets, all of those have a huge array of accessibility things built right into them, whether it's a screen reader, Zoom technology, more around voice to text, a whole bunch of things. And I would really encourage people to look in their settings for their computer and their devices just to see the long list of things that are present that people could use to be interacting with their digital content. So like, what is the consequence of this to authors if they don't engage with with making their content accessible? I think that the easiest to perceive consequence is uh, they might left out of, they might leave out of the door uh, a good portion of a potential uh, audience or potential customers. But beside the, the numbers, beside the, let's say business aspect, uh, I like to think about the impact on potential reputation, the impact on uh, the idea that uh, a, the audience, the customer might have on just ignoring categories of people. So we need to, I think that it is time for us to all get sensitized on the fact that we need to build a more inclusive world. I mean, it is everyone's responsibility. It's not Jeff, it's not Michele, it's not Sasha's responsibility only. It's not an expert responsibility only. Everyone can provide a contribution. So in my opinion, the impact on the reputation is probably, is getting the, the, the most prominent one. And uh, this is what, I mean, my, my advice. Yeah. If you think I... about... Sorry. Sorry. If you think about the whole idea that not doing this excludes people. And yeah. of course, I think all of us creatives really want to be about inclusion. We talk in the book, we talk to four different people in the book who haul, who have different disabilities and in some cases, different multiple disabilities. And one of the things that struck me was speaking to uh, one of our, one of my fellow authors in the queer romance space. Uh, they were trying to interact with courses. You know, there's a whole array of courses available to independent authors for ads and for marketing here and marketing there and writing craft and all these things. And repeatedly, they are not finding 
courses where like the live courses don't have live captions through whatever you know venue it is and certainly zoom is really good at live captions for for any call that you're doing there but even in the replays captions or transcripts weren't available so they either you know don't get to interact with the training at all because they're deaf and hard of well and hard of hearing i mean they've got hearing aids but those only give her give them about 30 40% of the full picture. So they either strain to hear that content and try to work on it, which of course is taxing and tiring, or they abandon it altogether. And they really feel like they're not getting information that other authors get because, you know, they're not included in that experience. Yeah. Transcripts is a real sticking point for me because when I first started the podcast, I used to do transcripts for for the show um but at the moment I only have school working hours and you know each transcript for an an episode is a two-hour job and you know when you do four a month that's a whole that's more than one working day and I just can't afford the time but it is something that I provide for courses and I do try to make sure I do video audio transcript and you know all, all of that stuff but it's very frustrating for me because I would like to um, have the sort of AI transcription software be more accurate because I, I can't just transcribe and leave it and put it up because it there are things still that don't make sense. It's not accurate enough. Um, and obviously outsourcing it's it costly. So that's a real, like that's one of the things for me that I, I know that I could change and I, I would really like to change. Um, but obviously it's a costly exercise one way or, the, or another. So I know um, we know that it's important to make sure our books and websites and social media are accessible to everyone. So what are some easy wins that people could take away from this episode? Anything practical that we could do to make our content more accessible? You kind of hit on one of the things there in what you just said around auto-generated. Auto-generated anything doesn't make it accessible. Uh, auto-generated transcripts or captions are just riddled with mistakes. Um, they come close. They're about 95% of the way there. And they're a great point to start the editing process, but they're not complete. And they will leave your audience feeling the same way. Like if you just put out a first draft of a book without any copy editing and without any fixes to it. Uh, so, and, and that's also true for alternative text because Facebook and Instagram, for example, We'll put alt text on anything you upload to it, and it's horrible. <laughs> uh, it'll be like, might be person one person standing outside with a beard because they've got a beard on their face, and they'll just kind of tag that on the end. Um, and it'll also try to read any um, text that's actually in the image. And if you think about those very popular uh, book promo graphics right now with the book in the middle and all the little arrows pointing with like tropes and plot points and stuff. Yes, you posted one of those today. (laughs) (laughs) The AI will actually read left to right, trying to read each line of that, including the book title and the byline and present that. That's what Facebook offers. So you need to make sure on social that you're cleaning up the alt text that's present there so that it's not just some real garbage um, that's sitting there. And then another key I would give, knowing how everybody loves to use emojis, really limit the use of them. Like put them at the end to like 
finish the punctuation on a post or a sentence or something, don't start with them because especially for screen readers, each emoji has its own thing that it reads out that may not be the context that you want it to be. Don't put emojis between the words for the same reason. But also you think about cognitively disabled people and emotion uh, and emojis as well. The, 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 the context and the, the way you want those to be perceived, if somebody's already having to parse the words you're putting in there, cause maybe they're dyslexic and they need a very clean line of text or, some other cognitive disability, you're just making it that much harder for them to get the message that you're trying to give because you're trying to add some visual, you know, sparkle with the emojis. So I would say that those are my three like quick hits on, on some things that can start to make the content more accessible. Yeah, I, I still remember the first time somebody asked me to uh, put captions on my stories and they asked, and and as far as I'm aware, they have no accessibility issues, but they used to watch my stories at work and they couldn't watch them with sound on. And I was like, oh, and and I was like, yeah, sure, I can do that. And then and then obviously there, there were other comments from other people who were like, oh, actually now I can like watch your story, like watch slash read your stories. And like that was a, a real um eye opener. And I just think so much of this is just pure, like um, what's the word? Not uh not nefarious, but it is still ignorance. You know, it's it's just accidental yeah. ignorance in, in a way. Um but the emojis, I'm definitely, I definitely do soaked far too many emojis, and I am, I am going to make an effort to make sure they're at the end. Instead, because I definitely start with emojis, I put them in the middle. You don't even think about it. So yeah, now I will be thinking about it going forward. Um, okay, so uh, we, you've just mentioned alt text there. But I wondered if you could give me an example of what good alt text is, because like I know I manage uh, a blog for um, free. I do some freelance work managing a blog. And I know that when we have pictures, we're supposed to put alt text on there. I never really know what it is I'm supposed to be describing or what I'm supposed to be putting into the alt text sections. So like how do I know when I'm supposed to use it and, and when it's not actually needed? And how do I know what a good sentence is to put in there? Somebody says that finding the right alt text is like an art. And uh, I actually agree with that. Uh, th there is no magic recipe to define a good alternative text. Um, it is, uh, and this is what also we, we, all, we, we always recommend, it is important to understand what role an image is play within the context. The context of what? It could be the context of the page, the context of the message we are communicating. So in case an image is purely decorative, you're just using an image as a sort of placeholder, an extremely nice placeholder, but is only conveying a decorative uh, meaning. In that case, your alternative text should be empty. It does not mean that you don't have to put the uh, alt attribute, because if you don't, uh, an assistive technology like a screen reader will read the, the file name of the image, making it very difficult to understand from for the final user. 
but setting the alternative tags uh, as an empty. The assistive technology will know that that image will need to be ignored, uh, so it won't be read. Instead, if the image is conveying a, a message, an important message, you should describe it with the right message. It is a, well, I mean, it's not funny. I mean, it was funny for us, not for, uh, in, in the context that we, we found the, the, the issue. It was a, the classic uh, search icon, the magnifier lens. And uh, so the, the site we were reviewing had as an alternative text of the magnifier lens, magnifier lens. Instead, that was supposed to be search because the function of the, Im the image was search, was not magnifying something. So you can just imagine how confusing would have been, actually it was, the experience of, of a blind user uh, using a screen reader that was hearing that there was an input text field on the page. So maybe that is what I can use to, to search something and then magnifier lens. With the experience that people with disabilities now have uh, of bad website, of course, they, for sure, they would have overtaken the, the, the problem, but that means that no respect probably. And with very little effort, you can fix it. You can make your site more accessible and, uh, and more meaningful to, to everyone. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting because obviously you derive meaning from from seeing the image, but actually it's the function of the image that's the important bit. I think that's a fantastic uh, bit of learning for everybody to take away. One of the uh, other things where uh, you you talk about in the book are the four main principles of accessibility on a website, and the, I think these are things that authors should be aware of. So I wondered if you could just uh, briefly go over them. Yeah, sure. Uh, the Web Content Accessibility Guideline, which is the sort of Bible to determine whether a digital property is accessible or not, are, are four. And actually, those four principles also apply to, I mean, the uh, everyday's object accessibility. Uh, so the first one is perceivable. It means that the user must have, must be able to perceive the content and the interface of your website. So uh, we, we just did the example around the alternative text that falls under the perceivable um, principle. The second principle is operable. So it requires uh, to provide the ability for all users, independently by their, their abilities, to operate with the user interface. Uh, the classic example is let's consider a, a motor impairment uh, and that prevents the user to interact with the mouse. So this side must provide the ability to the user to use just the keyboard to interact and browse the, the site. The third principle is understandable, which probably is the easy, easy, the easiest to understand. So the interface and the content must be understandable to, to the user. This actually, um, uh, on some of the success criteria, it becomes extremely interesting because it also covers uh, cultural disabilities. So uh, the use of an easy language and, and all these aspects that are, I think, extremely um, interesting for, for authors. 
And last but not least is the final principle, which is the robust. It is the probably the, the the most technical principle that is included into the into the guideline, but it is all about uh, respecting the standards and respecting the backward compatibility. One of the things that we always have to remember is that users with disabilities are massively relying on their system, so they are probably not upgrading them. 30 seconds after the operating system notifies us that there is an, an upgrade ready to be installed. They don't do that because the risk of losing the ability to, for example, have the system working as it was working before, it might generate a, a big problem. Let's imagine a blind user that relies on his computer and his screen reader to order the food, to book the, the train ticket, to um, book a, a taxi. If that after the upgrade, it won't work anymore or won't work as it was working before, consider that learning how to use a screen reader, it is probably a multi-year experience. So I find that so interesting. Like and and um actually that's going to make me slightly more empathetic, I think. Uh, it's even and and it's not even, it's just too any change like so with my stepdad um we often help like change bills over and do things like um like internet swap over but there's a lot of resistance to like upgrading and i was like we just like you need you need better internet like you need and so you know i wasn't particularly empathetic about it but actually i get it now i get it yeah i can understand because so much is reliant on the existing system and I'm just like, yeah, well, we can change it and upgrade it and make it better. But actually, when there are so many systems, you know, phone systems and call systems and nurse systems that are based on it, they don't, you know, you, I can understand why there's that resistance and reluctance to change it. And uh, so, yeah, thank you for that. I now, I'm not a very empathetic person, but I'm, I'm going to try very hard now to be better, a better human. Um, yeah, thank you. It's so interesting. I even I've, I've read the book and learned so much, and I'm still learning even more. This is a fantastic interview. Thank you, guys. Um, one of the things, speaking of, that I learned uh, was that using colour to differentiate isn't always helpful, which blew my mind because I am an extremely visual person, and I um actually rely on color to learn um and like when i was studying at university i would like put my psychology studies in i would write them in certain colors so that i could close my eyes and picture like my big brainstorm thing like with all the different colors on it and then i'd remember the the, the numbers and the words and the and the authors and things um and so that like helps me to categorize and it's how i find books on my bookshelf but um i was ignorant of obviously the fact that that's a huge problem for people who are colorblind. So what are some of the things that those of us who are able-bodied take for granted that you wish that we would change? Yeah, relying on, on color to convey information is probably one of those. Uh, just the color is not enough. Uh, um, you should use something else. Um, let, let's do an easy example. So imagine that this style that you have on your website uh, highlights the links only with the color. Let's also make sure the links are underlined, which is the standard, uh, um, let's say, link style. Because otherwise, people may not be able to perceive the difference between the link and the plain text. 
the same uh, when you in case uh, you are providing instructions on how to do something. Uh, recently, I've seen a site that was uh, suggesting to um, to use the the red button. But what if I'm using the my my interface only on a scale of gray of gray? I would not be able to perceive what is the red button, and I would not be able to distinguish between the other buttons. So again, it is not necessarily an hyper-technical aspect is the ability to understand to the ability to start understanding which are the difficulties and these are difficulties that you might be able to perceive not just on the web but on the everyday life so uh, this is i think one of the uh yeah the, the nicest thing around accessibility that up when you start learning, and probably Sasha, you confirmed that before, right? When you start learning it on a field, then it, you naturally apply it to a number of different fields. And the use of colors is is a classic one that you can find on books, guides, uh, instructions, uh, websites, uh, on Facebook posts. Uh, it is a very popular mistake. I think it's so natural for so many of us to... Um you know, we go through the world with our own rose tinted spectacles on. We go through the world with our own experience. And so often we we take that for granted that that's everybody's experience and it's not. And that's why this is so important because none of us are perfect. We all have things to learn. And I think as long as we are open to being humble and to putting our hands up and saying, actually, yeah, I you know, I did, I had no idea. I'm going to change that now, you know. And 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 I think that's one of the magical things about your book is that you say throughout it, nobody's expecting you to do everything in this book immediately. You can do one little thing this month, another thing next month, you know. And I think that's what's so um, encouraging because I actually left the book very motivated to try and fix some of these things. Um, and the the thing to remember, and you kind of touched on it there, that we tell you, you don't have to do everything, but it's also a mindset of progress over perfection. It's one of the big things talked about among all the advocates in this space, because you can't do everything all at once. And especially for you know who we're talking to here, which is really creative entrepreneurs, probably little to no technical experience, working with little to no budget, you know, probably maybe if they're lucky, a PA who helps with this stuff. But to know you can make a little, you know, you can choose to do nothing on your existing content and always do better going forward. Those little things add up and it's because you don't want this to feel like a crushing, like, oh God, now I've got 2000 other things to go do. Baby steps, parse out what you're going to do, what you think the most important thing is and just do something. Yeah. And like speaking of doing something, I think one of the things that authors uh, spend a lot of their marketing time on is social media. So what are some of the things that we can do to be more inclusive and accessible on social media? Really think about that emoji use. I mean, I will tie back to that because emojis is one of the places that I think most people, if they're going to abuse emojis, it's abuse on social. Um, put them at the end of the post. Don't bury them in the middle of it so that your message comes through. And that's really 
what I look at in every instance when I'm thinking about social. It's make sure the message you're giving actually comes true through Instagram stories and TikTok. When you can add your own text to those, make sure you're using text that's actually big enough to read. Um, those stories, you can't, you know, pinch and zoom and do all that stuff. And there are so many on Instagram, people type these big, long missives on their Instagram stories. And it's really teeny tiny text. And I'm like, I, I have no idea. And if I am not reading it with my glasses on, it's like, you know, you're going to lower your your interaction with that. Make it bigger text, more screens, whatever that takes, you know, to get that across. Um, and the same thing when you're doing caption fonts. Like, I love your caption fonts when you're doing your stories. It's good big text. I have, I, I think I could read that with my glasses off perhaps, which is great. Um, think about how you're using images and what you're doing with them. Images of text are used a lot and, you know, they're catchy. They're, they're like those graphics we talked about with all the arrows pointing to the books, but make sure that that message is coming out into the post itself because, you know, we talk about using alt text, which is great, but there are people with low vision who aren't going to use the screen reader to get to the alt text. So for that book example, all of those little plot points that are running around the outside of the book, make that part of the post in a sentence format. You know, this book features these things so that it's equivalent information presented that that comes back to the perceivable principle that Michele mentioned different people perceive in different ways. So make sure the content's available in all those different perceivable ways. So I got halfway there with, with that tropes post <laughs> because I put the, put the, the tropes in, in the caption, but then I put a tick emoji by each one. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so close. Well, no better next no time. cigar. <laughs> Probably um, you need to read the book again. I know, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> clearly I do. Oh dear. Okay. Last last sort of major question then. T talk to me about font. You've mentioned font um about having it large in captions, but also there are uh there are things that we should know about choosing font for our websites or for our books or or or, or social media where possible. I would say this is less about books, book covers, um, because that's going to the brand and the feel of the book and and that kind of thing. And the book cover itself is really art. And yes, there are certain things you could do, but you don't want to like take away from the feel of your cover for that when you're just when you're promoting the book. You know, you want the text around that art to be properly accessible and stuff. But when you're looking at like, it's, you can't really adjust the font on, on aspects of social. You can, you've got some font choices on stories and areas like that. But if you're coming, if you're going to look at font families, for example, like Tahoma, Times New Roman, Verdana, and to a large degree, Arial, Calibri, Helvetica, those are generally well accessible fonts because the things that you're looking for are easy easily distinguishable letters so a font where a lowercase l and an uppercase i and the numeral one don't all look the same 
because then you're going to ha start having people, you know, having difficulty parsing the letters if they're visually interacting with them. And then, of course, it's a good font size. So, you know, 12, 14 size font on websites and in emails and stuff. Think about how are you using on your uh, emails, for example, a mobile friendly template so that somebody doesn't have to pinch and zoom, even if you're using a big font, because it's not reformatting in the mobile window well. Um, and if you're doing tiny text, don't go too tiny. You know, even if you're doing like rules for something, somebody's trying to read that. Um, so, you know, be, be considered about that as well. Very thin fonts, things with big flourishes in them. Um, be wary of those. Those will be much harder for people with cognitive disabilities potentially to parse and low vision to parse out what those are. Coming back to like images of text and that promo graphic, if you do have swirly stuff in there because it's part of the brand feel of the book, just make sure you're getting that message again in the post and in the alt text so that it's all considerable. Two other things I'll throw out about fonts, um, and one of these ties back to color, is color contrast. So beyond the use of color that Michele mentioned, think about the color contrast and the, the ability to discern what's in the background versus the foreground. So if you're thinking about text, does the text pop enough off of the background color to be readable? And we'll give you, I'll send you for the show notes, a link to a color contrast checker that's available. You just put in the hex codes for your foreground and your background, and it's going to tell you if it passes color contrast has nice little sliders on it so you can darken and lighten text to find the right balance to ensure that those visually interacting can see and discern the color appropriately and not have to like work too hard on it. And the last thing I'll mention around uh, text is the alignment of the text. Centering text, especially large blocks of text, and so we're not talking like headlines, but large chunks of text, very cognitively draining to read because your eye is always having to find where the start of the line is. Same thing with justification because there's in, inconsistent spacing between words. Left justify it so the eye can follow, you know, not so much with the indents because indentations are expected, but, you know, start left aligned copy so that it's just a straight line makes for the easiest of readability. Yeah, do you know, I've always hated um, center justified um, text and I never really know known why, but it is actually exhausting to read it. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. that's so interesting. Um, thank you both so, so much, because I think this is really, really important topic. And I hope that listeners, even if they're only going to go and do one thing, please do go and take one action after listening to this book. Well, two actions, one read the book <laughs> and then to take a take a practical action um but this is the rebel author podcast so tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel and i don't mind who goes first <laughs> i will say that i prepared better this time than the first <laughs> time that we did this because i know will and i found this question to be like oh my god what does this even mean i have one for this though and I challenge everybody after they read the book to start doing this kind of same thing. And it's gently educating people about accessibility. As you learn it, pass it on. Like, even before I wrote the book, every now and then I would talk to an author colleague, a podcaster colleague about newsletters or things that I saw that were just 
very clearly pop out to me because of this work that I do. Like maybe think about doing this thing different than this thing to spread the word. And I'm even more kind of out there with it now, you know, whether it's a, a colleague or a business that I, that I work with or somebody who, uh, you know, I use maybe widgets and plugins on my websites to get to make certain things happen. I'll either go look for new ones or be like, hey, can you this is bad. Can you do something about this, please? Because uh, and, and it's all about gently. It's not about aggressively coming out of the gate and be like, oh, my God, why aren't you doing this? It's like you may not know this, but X, Y, Z. And that way, accessibility becomes something that we all start to think about a little more. So it's a little, it's a little rebellion to kind of go, and, and it takes a little courage to just know you're going to go reach out to somebody and go, can I just give you some unsolicited advice about this? But it's all about trying to make everything more inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And the more welcoming we can be, you know, the, the, the better our community becomes and, and the more, um, what's the word, like a, the more appreciated our readers feel. So I love that rebellion. Um, Michele, what about you? You've got to have a rebellion too. <laughs> I I do. I do. Is uh, it, it might be considered a little bit close to just one, but the the message I want to to convey is that we live in a world that relies on accessory to use uh, something that has been just purely designed. And we need to stop uh, with the, the concept of an assistive technology or even worse, an alternative. It needs to, it needs to stop. <laughs> so the fact that the product that you are designing, uh, often we see the main actor as the designer, not the user is what causes the majority of the accessibility issues. So we need to, and, and that's something that is not necessarily related to the technology only, but in the way we, we speak. And I, I include myself. I mean, this is a message I sent to myself as well. So to, to be more inclusive, but in a way that we think we, we learn, which could be all the difficulties, all the difficulty, the, the possible different abilities of our audience and we try to be more inclusive but in a way that we don't just consider that if he's not able to use my website well it will have to it, it, for sure she will have an accessory that will make her able well not it's not always like that we can we can design better we can write better we can produce better products to to be available for a, a wider audience yeah i love that and i think the best um marketers who are authors keep the end user being the reader um at the fore of their design of their books and their marketing campaigns and you know that they're, they're the ones who are the most effective at this and so i think that's i think that's an amazing rebellion Okay, tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your book, and anything else you would like to add. Absolutely. So you can find out all about Content for Everyone at contentforeveryone.info. Uh, information where you can get the book. We're also going to be uh, putting up routine uh, blog posts there to talk about examples that we've seen, 
news that would be of interest to creative. So we'll start to have, you know, that be kind of an ongoing resource uh, to help share even more around the book. And uh, content for everyone is available everywhere. Uh, ebook, paperback, large print paperback, and uh, audiobook. And you should find that at all of your, um, anywhere you want to pick up a book <laughs> or pick up an audio, it should be there. Are you narrating? I am actually, yes. Yeah, that's exciting. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And um, uh, if you want more about me, jeffadamswrites.com for the fiction and biggayfictionpodcast.com for the podcast. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you'd like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Jeff Adams and Michele Lucchini, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Week, I am joined by one of my fave humans, Ines Johnson, and we are going to be talking about business, processes, efficiency, and basically how she is a fucking badass author. Uh, so join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.